Please turn with me to today's scripture reading, which comes from Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you be, dis and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. This is the word of God. Today we're looking at a very uh, important psalm because it's one of those psalms where Jesus himself said that it was talking about him. And, th and this psalm, it's a coronation psalm. What's that? It's what you read when somebody uh, is getting crowned. They're, they're about to ascend the throne. And the context of this psalm is that God is installing the true king on Zion. Zion and Jerusalem, they're synonymous. So in Jerusalem, this king is being installed, and everyone around him is conspiring. Now, it's not uncommon that when you have a new king in those ancient times, because you had a lot of enemy nations surrounding you who wanted to test you, uh, they wanted to see what kind of king you really were. So this psalmist says, this is God's anointed one. God is with him. But it becomes immediately clear as you read the psalm that everything that's said about this king in this passage is too great to be about just one human person, just one earthly king. Right from the start, the psalmist mentions he's the anointed one. That's the Hebrew word Messiah. He's the anointed one. In other words, everyone is conspiring and coming up and gathering against the Messiah. But in verse 10, he says, be prepared. The king is coming. It's a psalm of coronation. And so we're preparing for the coming of the king. That's the meaning of Advent. There are three things we're going to see today. What it means to desire the king, what it means to dethrone the king, what it means to delight in the king. Desiring the king, dethroning the king, and then how can we delight in the king? First, desiring the king. In verses 1 to 2, verses 1 to 2 it refers to the nations, the kings, the rulers who gather, and, and they're conspiring. But in verse 4, the psalmist says, the one enthroned in heaven, this is God, he laughs. He's, the Lord is scoffing at them. Verse 5, then he rebukes them and he terrifies them. In other words, there are other kings everywhere, but there is one king that's above them all. And in verse 6, God says, I've installed, I have crowned that king. Throughout the history of the world, throughout literature, whether it's fact or fiction, legends, truth, history, there is an obsession with kings. Even though history has proven that most kings are tyrants, most kings have been evil, so why are we so obsessed with them? I mean, we live in the United States. We got rid of our king. But for a nation with no king, we're still obsessed. We've merely replaced them with athletes and entertainers and scholars and billionaires and crime bosses. 
We're constantly creating and looking for, uh, looking to crown a king. We're constantly crowning them. We're constantly adoring them. Why? Now, some of you are saying, well, I mean, I thought this was an Advent sermon. This doesn't seem that interesting. This doesn't seem that relevant. But I want to tell you, it is. And here's why. We all want a king in our lives. We're all looking for a king. We're looking for them everywhere. Think about this. Single folks. We have lots of single folks in our church. What kind of person do you hope to marry? Everyone is looking for somebody who's really noble, but then really humble. Somebody who's really strong, but then really just. Somebody who's super wise and yet compassionate. Somebody who's really wealthy and yet really generous, not into his money. We're looking for a king. Think about the kind of person that you want to work for in your career. We all want somebody who sees the big picture. In other words, they're on high, but they're able to walk with their people on the ground. They're down to earth. Somebody who protects his people, a strong leader who values his team, we're looking for a king. Think about the kind of father you have or the kind of father you wanted. And if you're a man, think about the kind of father you want to be. Everywhere, always, we're looking for a king. It's not just cultural. It's not just uh, uh, organizational. It's just not economics. It's not just financial. It's spiritual. There's something in us, somewhere in us. It's part of our spiritual DNA. There's some sort of imprint or memory or trace of the king that we knew way back in the ancients imprinted us in our spiritual DNA that we knew that we somehow lost, who was perfect, There was a king who was powerful and wise and just and compassionate, somebody whose beauty and brilliance is beyond comparison, and we were created to worship that king. Somehow we just knew that we were created to serve this king, to give ourselves to this king. But it's just a shadowy picture, a shadowy figment in our hearts. So we're constantly looking for this king. Ever read uh, the Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey? I mean, you had to have at least her of it, right? Poor Odysseus, Ulysses, he's like a king. He's mighty, he's a warrior, he's powerful, he's wise, but he gets lost in his journey back home. And he's making his way home, and it takes a while. Meanwhile, there's his son, Telemachus, waiting by the shore every day for his father, a father that he barely remembers. He fought in the Trojan War, and so he barely remembers his father, and yet he's just waiting by the shore for his father to come home while his mother, his, uh, the wife of Odysseus, Penelope, she's being courted. There's men everywhere in her life just courting her, wanting to have her. They're these fake kings, these frauds. That's us. Like Telemachus, waiting by the shore for the king to arrive. Like Penelope, waiting for the king to arrive. We're waiting, constantly anticipating. We're looking around. But the Bible says it's true. There is someone who is a king of kings, who's greater than all the legends put together. He's so great that the best leaders, the best athletes, the most beautiful people in the world are but a dim reflection of his glory. And if you don't know this king, if you dismiss this king, you're going to be looking for him. You're going to be giving into him. You're going to be serving him. You're going to be adoring the wrong king and the wrong kings for the rest of your lives. What's worse is if you can't find him, you're just going to line people up in your life who are less than a shadow of the real king. And you're just going to make a king out of that person, and that's going to poison you, and it's going to ruin your life because you've crowned the wrong people. You've crowned the wrong people over and over in your family or in, your, in the workplace or, uh, or in the church, in your personal lives. 
The author of Hebrews actually quotes, this is the New Testament, he actually quotes Psalm 2. And he says this, he says, to what earthly king, even an angel, could God truly say, you have, are my begotten son, that all the ends of the earth are your possession. In other words, what the, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that, is it possible that there is a real king of kings? There is. There is an only hope. And he's coming. We're all looking for him. I mean, we're trying to crown people all the time because we're looking for the ultimate king, the ultimate hope. We're all anticipating him. That's the meaning of Christmas. We're looking to crown the anointed one who is the Christ. We desire him. We want him. We need him. Our lives aren't complete without him. But there's a problem, and that's the second point. If you were to ever encounter this king, you would dethrone him immediately. You would hate this king. You would avoid this king. You would kill this, this kind of king. What do I mean by that? Verses 1 to 3. Why did the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And here's what they say. Let us break their chains. Let us throw off their fetters. What does that mean? It almost sounds like these people feel oppressed by this great king. He's supposed to be such a kind and beautiful king, and yet they feel oppressed by him, especially in that translation that we just read. But it's not true, you see. The Hebrew word for let us break their chains, the Hebrew word for chains, the Hebrew word for fetters, I mean, what's a fetter? It, the Hebrew word actually points to a harness, What's that? It's something that an owner puts on his horse. So what does that mean? You have to see what this passage is saying is that the kings of the earth are angry. Why? Because in their own minds, they're saying, I'm the king. I get to choose what I want to do with my life. You can't tell me. You have no right to tell me how to live. And yet objectively, in reality, we still have an owner. And they hate it. And verse 3 is saying, I'm declaring independence from you. That's us. We're the kings of the earth. You see, there's one conviction that everyone shares in hell. And it's this, I am the master of my own life. And so we're constantly battling God for control. We're constantly dethroning him. We're constantly usurping him, rebelling against him. By the way, that drive... That pursuit will create, I mean, if you continue on in that pursuit, it will create hell in your relationships, in your marriage, in your communities, in the church. You can't tell me how to live my life. I mean, what right do you have? Look at your life. I belong to me and only me. The problem is, that's what we said in the Garden of Eden, all the way back to the first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis. We looked at our creator, who is our owner. We looked at him, and, and we crowned a different voice in our lives. We said, I am my own. I'm going to be like you. I can become like you. I'm going to follow my way. It's in our DNA, our spiritual DNA. Ever since we chose to sin against God in the Garden of Eden, and we see that imprint in our kids. Think about it. Parents, I mean, you know, from the moment your child is, I guess, about able to walk, they want to break free. They want to do their own thing. Where does that come from? I mean, no one taught that child to do that. On one hand, we're desperately looking for a king, and yet on the other hand, in the presence of the king, we would dethrone him. We hate the presence of the king in our lives. Somebody who actually claims to own us, and so we've dethroned him. 
Jesus Christ, he's, the Bible says that he is the sustainer of the universe. He is the governor of the universe. He is the owner. He is the creator. And he came down to earth to be with his people. That's what the word Emmanuel, we hear that a lot around Advent time. Emmanuel means God with us. He came down to earth to be with his people. And what do we do? We arrested him, we beat him, we bled him, and we killed him. Now, some of us here are saying, well, I mean, I don't hate God personally. That was them. I, didn't, I don't hate God personally. I never conspired against him. I never said anything bad about him. Don't lump me in with those people back then or this guy even next to me or that guy. Look, one, in the Old Testament, over and over, if you look at the book of Judges as an example, you see that the people forgot God. The people of Israel forgot God. It doesn't say the people of Israel forgot about God. You know what that means? These are people who are in God's community. They worship God regularly. They participated in the community. They gave generously. And yet what the text is saying is God was placed in the periphery of their lives. He didn't have much to say in their decisions. He, you, don't, you don't consciously think about the character of God and the will of God in your pursuits or in your lifestyles or in your relationships, and so you become reckless when you do that. God's never involved in the things that really matter. God's never central in the things that matter to your life. And so he doesn't have much of a say, but then too, in the New Testament, Jesus Christ comes, and what does he say? He's facing this rich young ruler. He's a king, this young ruler. And he says, what I, the, the king says, well, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, well, here's what you do. Sell everything you have. See, that was his identity. I want you to give it away to the poor, and I want you to follow me. To a large crowd, he says, I want you to hate your mother and hate your father. I mean, clearly he's not saying hate your mother and hate your father. In other words, what he's really saying in both those cases, he's saying I, your love for me must be so great that any other love you have in your life must look like hate compared to your love for me. This is about priority. The priority of God, the centrality of your relationship with God in all parts of your life and everything else then moves to the periphery. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am the owner of you. I am your owner. That we hate. That we reject. We may not do it hostily, with hostility, but we dismiss it. We ignore it. I mean, well, pastor, that's just a typical non-believer, right? That's just a typical non-Christian, right? Beware. There are people in this room right now who grew up in the church, who's all, they've always lived right. In fact, they're respected because they've always lived a good life. And Jesus says, there are people like that who use the church, who use their faithfulness, who use their goodness more to avoid Jesus than to worship Jesus, than to submit to Jesus. What do I mean by that? I'm going to say it this way. Most of us in this room will admit, I'm a sinner. I think most of us in this room Either because you grew up in the church or because you just look at your life and you just know. And you say, I'm a sinner. I can admit that. And what you're really saying is that you are a sinner generally. But you also believe you're a decent person. You also believe you're an honest person. You also believe you lived a pretty good life. You're in the church. But it shows in the way you respond to wise criticism in your life. Not just outwardly. I mean, we can all put up a good face. But how you are inwardly. Do you have an allergic reaction to critique? Why is it like that? You know why? Think about this. 
a person who views themselves as a helpless sinner, when they're confronted about specific sins in their lives, when they're, uh, you've hurt somebody and they confront you about that, they're not that defensive because their sinfulness doesn't surprise them. No matter how good they've been, their sinfulness is assumed. And so they're much more quick to own their sin. They're much more quick, even if they don't see it right away, they're much more quick to assume that, hey, this person probably has a point. They're much more quick to own their sin and to seek forgiveness and to listen without any resentment because, number one, the critique's not going to break them. It's likely real. It's likely true. But that's also why Jesus saved me. So much more quick to own their sin, yet this is another place in my life that I may not have even been aware of. That is a source of sin in my life, and it's going to ruin me. God saved me from this. I need to hear this. How quickly have you owned anything that somebody has confronted you with and critiqued you about? The mark of faith is much more about those kind of things, your ability to own something more so than you just living a good life. Do you understand what I mean? That alone is a hint. Otherwise, you're just using your goodness to avoid Jesus as kind of a way of putting up something and saying, well, look at me. I'm not like that. It's easy to do that. You're using your goodness to avoid Jesus. You're trying to avoid needing Jesus when the whole purpose of Christ, the whole purpose of Advent, the whole purpose of Christmas is what? So that you could be free from fear. You could be free from the guilt of your sin. That that sting is no longer there. You see that? I mean, you may be in the church, but your heart is far from God otherwise. So you're still relying on your own goodness and you're relying on your looks and your, your behavior and your intelligence, maybe your logic or your status. You're relying on these things. Look, whether you're a Christian or not, no one here wants to be owned by somebody. We're feisty. We're humans. We're, we're feisty. It's our sinfulness. We don't want to harness. We don't want to be owned. Well, then how do you know you're a Christian? I'll tell you. A Christian can identify the ways, all the areas in their lives. A life, Martin Luther, the great theologian, he says all of life is what? Repentance. A Christian will identify ways that they are resistant to the king, and they're going to battle that. They say, oh, here's another area in my life where I'm resistant to the king. I'm going to battle that because I want to be closer to the king. I want to I I be in the image of my king. They're going, to battle, they're going to battle their sin in their everyday life. A Christian knows every day in micro moments and macro moments, they're battling God for control, and they know that about themselves. They hate that about themselves. They're able to admit that. I need help with this because of their love for the king. Only a real Christian would ever have the power or the guts or the courage to admit that or the humility to admit that and then submit that. It's not just about admitting it or confessing it. It's about actually submitting that, submitting, committing it to prayer, seeking help, seeking accountability, and saying, I need to. A lot of us, we're so good that those subtle things, we kind of want to repress, and we say, well, I mean, I'm going to let it slide. You know what you're doing? You're creating your own bartering system with God, and you're saying, hey, well, I mean, I get I have these kind of flaws, but I'm also these good things too. You're still avoiding Jesus and trying to come to God and then you're angry that, that you're not feeling it these days, and there are moments where it's like really up and down, that's the reason why, you see? 
Your spiritual life gets awfully confusing when you do that. You see that? Only a real Christian knows, knows who they are, and they just hate that about themselves because of their love for the king. Only a real Christian can not only admit it, but submit it to God. And so you're either battling other priorities, you're going to battle your wealth. You have wealth, it's a good thing, but you're going to battle that from becoming your sense of worth. You're going to put it in its place. You're going to put your status in its place. You're going to put your reputation. You may have a great reputation, or maybe you have a bad reputation, and it just drives you, right? It just shapes you in a certain way. You're going to put that in its place. You're going to put your relationships, as as important as they may be, you may put certain personal pursuits. You're going to put it in its place on the periphery so that God could be central, and you're going to submit those things to God. Or you're going to battle God for control, You're going to try to figure out a way to do it both. You know what you're doing? You're still crucifying the king. You're still dethroning him. But if you see it, I'm going to offer one word of encouragement. If you see that about yourself, if you hate that about yourself, if you want to change that about yourself, that's probably evidence of something that only the Holy Spirit would allow you to see. You can't figure that out on your own. You can't even come to that on your own. How does a person who has lived a good life genuinely say, but I have, I have these sins where I'm struggling with God and I'm battling and resisting God. How do you come to that? Only the Holy Spirit can allow us to see that. Otherwise, if you can't admit today that you are dethroning the king, you're dethroning the king. You see that? Well, then how do you delight in him? How do you delight in the king? Verse 10 says, one, be wise. Verse 11 says, serve the king. That's two. Verse three, uh, number three, verse 12 says, rejoice in the king. That's, and, then, and then four, you kiss the king. Verse 13, five, right? You take refuge in the king. You can either be wise and serve the king and rejoice in the king and kiss the king and find refuge in the king and you'll be blessed. Or you won't be wise, you won't serve the king, you won't rejoice in the king, you won't kiss the king, you won't find refuge in the king, and you will be ruined. In other words, yes, there is a harness. Sometimes it feels constraining, but that harness is really your shield. A lot of us are claustrophobic, right? But it's your shield. This is a dangerous world, and we've been redeemed from a much greater danger That harness, it feels like a harness, but it's actually a refuge. It's a paradox. The Christian life on the outside at times looks threatening and oppressive, like a harness. It's going to ruin my life, we say. It's going to ruin my pursuits, we say. But you take that harness off, and you're going to die. You take that harness on, you submit to the king, and you'll find real freedom. Do you trust that? Do you, would you entrust your wealth to that? Would you entrust your family to that? Would you entrust your sex life to that? Would you entrust your career to that? Would you let that determine where you live? Would you let that determine how you live? how you are with people who are below you at work, who look up to you at work, how you treat your peers here in the church. Do you trust that? What does that mean? I'll say it very plainly. 
Uh, I have the unfortunate, uh, under uh, the unfortunate blessing of a child who loves music. What I mean by that is uh, he loves instruments. And what do I mean by that? He loves the drums, so it's unfortunate. He loves the drums. Every morning, I, don't need, I haven't used an alarm clock in about a year. And the reason why is because every morning at about 6.30, 6.45, he's on his drums. We got him like a, a real set of kid drums. So he's banging those drums. He puts those headphones on. And then he just starts going. And none of us have headphones on, so you understand what our house is like, right? As a parent, when you see gifts in your children, what do you do? Oh, you want them uh, to live up to their full potential. That's what you do. That's the parent's dream. You want your kids to go further than you. You want them to live up to their full potential. And so what do you do? You get them tools. You buy them instruments. You get them lessons. You find them uh, mentors. Now, what happens is, once that starts, they're subject to what? They practice every day for hours. They got to practice. Now, it's not just free banging, right? What they got to do is, now they've got to be disciplined. So in the beginning, I imagine my son would complain. Oh, you can complain. Oh, it's summer vacation. You know, my hands hurt. Um, You know, I'm sick. I want to watch TV. I'm hungry. Is it time yet? Over time, what happens? They start to excel. They start to get honed. They start to blossom. What's happening? That thing that was a harness, that thing that was a restriction that constrained them, it kept them from doing things in the moment that they wanted to be or in the moment they wanted to do, it actually starts to become a refuge. They get lost in their instruments, don't they? I mean, you ever see a pianist play? I mean, when they're good, they just get lost in their music. They used to say Beethoven because he was, I took a class on Beethoven, that's why I know. They used to say that Beethoven, you know, when he lost his hearing, he would just put his ear to the piano as he would play to hear the vibration. You see that? It becomes a refuge. It becomes a blessing. Can you imagine Michael Jordan, the greatest basketball player that ever lived? Right? Can you imagine him complaining about the foul line? It's so far. It's so far. Like the boundaries. Why? Why can't I just step past it? He never does that. You know why? Because he has disciplined himself to use those things to his advantage. You see that? Can you imagine Forrest Gump? You guys ever watch Forrest Gump, the movie? In the beginning, they put these braces on his legs, and it's confining, and he kind of walks stiff, right? And he gets ridiculed. It's confining. It's constraining. But what happens? It strengthens his back, strengthens his legs, and he's able to run. And half that movie, what's he doing? He's just running. He starts a movement of running. You remember that? The worst thing for a parent is what? When a child says, Mom, Dad, you never gave me a chance. Why did you never give me a chance? I never got to study there. I never got to play this. I never got to practice, and now it's too late. I will never live up to my full potential. It's tragic. But the reality is, that's how God views you. He wants you to live up to the way that you've been designed. He wants you to excel and to blossom. And he knows the only way to do that is if you are under the creator. Because only he has got the manual of how to operate. He has built you a certain way, and the best way to live is under the king. You see that? That's how you live to your fullest potential. The Bible says that every human being has potential. They've been made in the image of God. But in order to reach that ultimate potential, you need to come under the creator. You need to come under his harness, the harness of the king. That's what it means to believe in the king. That's what it means to believe the king, to trust the king, to love the king, to discover the king, to serve the king. Then you will know what you were meant to be. 
You see that? To love the king, to kiss the son, to be loved by him, then you will know your worth. You will have your full potential. It's what it means to take refuge in the king. It's what it means to be blessed if you do take refuge in the king. How do you do it? In John chapter 12, Jesus Christ is entering into Jerusalem. That is Zion. He's entering into the holy hill. And the crowd, I mean, they're waving palm branches because it's Palm Sunday. That's what it means. They're waving palm branches. Palm branches symbolize victory, the victory of the king. And they're crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. It's like a coronation. But you know what he did? Instead of choosing this beautiful stallion to enter in, which is what kings did, he chose a young donkey. Instead of ascending the throne when he got into Jerusalem, you know what happened? He ascended a different hill called Calvary. He ascended the cross. He ascended to his death. In fact, he told his disciples, the hour of my glory when I will be lifted up has come. He's talking about his death. You see that? What does that mean? It means Jesus Christ is noble, the most noble, and yet he was humble. Jesus Christ is strong, the most strong. They were waving palm branches to symbolize victory, and yet he's so tender, and, he's so, and yet he's just at the same time. Jesus Christ is so wise, and yet he's so compassionate. He's looking at the criminal that's crucified next to him, and he says, today, the criminal just says, remember me, and he says, today you will be with me. You know that? This is the wealthiest ruler. I mean, he's looking at the rich young ruler. And he says, go, sell your possessions, give it to the poor. And so Jesus Christ, I mean, he understands. The rich young ruler couldn't do it. He walked away sad, it said, because he had great wealth. Jesus Christ would understand because he is a rich young ruler. He is the richest ruler. And yet he did give up all his possessions. He left heavens thrown above so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love. Why? He bled for Adam's helpless race. This is the wealthiest ruler in the world, and yet he was generous. He gives up his life. Think about the kind of person you want to marry, the person you want as a leader or a mentor or a shepherd or a brother or a father. Jesus Christ is the fullest embodiment of every ideal that we are looking for in a king because he is the ultimate king. And yet Philippians chapter 2 says, even though he was in very nature God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. And so what did he do? He emptied himself, took on the nature of a servant. He came down. He became obedient even to death death on a cross. You know what that means? It means that we met the king. We knew the king. He came down to us. And what do we do? We hated the king. We dethroned the king and we killed the king. And so we conspired against the king. We gathered against Jesus. And on the cross, he was stripped naked. In other words, he was humiliated without any shield, without any cover, without any defense. The psalmist says, come under the king. And he becomes your shield. He becomes your refuge. You will be blessed. On the cross, the wrath of God is pouring out on Jesus as a penalty for our sins. He has had no shield, not even a single cloth to cover him. In other words, he didn't receive the blessing. He received the curse of God. He received the curse, the cross. And there he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, I have no refuge in the king. 
The king has abandoned me. I'm cosmically, I'm not just earth on, dethroned on earth. I'm cosmically dethroned. Why? So that we would have refuge in the king. And so Jesus Christ was cursed so that we could be blessed. Jesus Christ lost the father so that we could be reconciled to the father. Jesus Christ took our sin, no matter what that sin is. He gave up his righteousness, took on our sin. It's the ultimate transaction, the most imbalanced transaction in the history of the world, the history of the universe, so that we could be rescued and we would receive the righteousness and power and inheritance of the king. It means that we receive his potential, everything that he deserved. 1 Peter chapter 2 says, you are a royal priesthood. In other words, you are kings. To come under the king is to come under his embrace. And now, to serve the king means that you have meaning. Now, to kiss the king, every time you look at the cross, you experience his embrace, his love. Every other thing that acts like a king in your life demands you to die for it. Jesus Christ is the only king in your life that dies for you. We are afraid to come under the king because we've only had bad examples of kings in our lives throughout history for that matter. They exploit us. And we think, oh gosh, this is as good as it gets, so we still give in to these kings. But what if you have the kindest, most gracious king who loves you with his life and he says, trust me. Trust me with your life. The cross is the proof that it's true. Think about what coming under the king means. Think about what it'll do. Are you guilty today? King's pardon. Do you feel like you owe a great debt? The king clears debts. Is your life crazy? Jesus Christ is a king. A king establishes order. He rules your life. He orders your life. Have you experienced a great injustice in your life? A true king will never forget your hurts. In fact, it's a promise in the Bible that he will never let one single wrong against you go unpunished. That's the justice of the king. Have you lost something big in your life? The king says, I'm coming back, and I'm making all things new. He will restore it all. I mean, if you encounter that kind of king, how would you respond? What would you do? I'm going to give you some practical points. Really quick, I'm just going to rattle them off. I'm getting in the habit of doing that. I won't do that every time. I'm going to rattle them off because we're running out of time. What does it mean to come under the king? What does it mean to crown the king? Verses 1 to 3, stop conspiring against him. Submit to him. Trust his word. Verses four to five, it says the Lord laughs. He scoffs at the rebellion. Then he rebukes and he terrifies them in his wrath. Do you trust that Jesus Christ received that wrath, that terror, the ultimate rebuke for you on the cross? Then there's no more wrath. There's only worth. There's no more fear. There's only faith. You can go to him by faith. You can be reconciled to the king. Verse 6, the king is installed on his holy hill in Zion. Crown the king. You know what that means? Give up your other kings. Put them on the periphery. His glories now we sing. Who died and rose on high. Who died eternal life to bring and lives that death may die. Verse 7, God proclaims, Jesus, you are my son. Behold the beauty of the king. Adore the king. Look at his character. Look at his beauty. 
He is the embodiment of everything you've ever been looking for in a person, in a job, anything. That's the meaning of Christmas. You see that? Celebrating the king, worshiping the king, verses 8 to 10, essentially says everything belongs to Jesus. He rules them, he breaks them. That's what, that's what it says. Jesus had everything, and yet he emptied himself. What would he gain by giving up everything so that now the ends of the earth are his possession? He's clearly talking about you. He's talking about us, his people. We are so treasured by God. So trust the king. Treasure the king. Make him your priority. Verse 11, serve the king. That means obey the king. It also says rejoice in the king with trembling. In other words, wait on him anticipate him he's coming but wait on him in a way that it shapes your life verse 12 kiss the king love the king praise the king we're going to sing soon in response we get to do that verse 12 ends with take refuge in the king you know what that means rely on him rely on him in a way that you could never rely on your parents that you could never rely on your lover or your closest friends or even your career, or your salary, your bank account, even in the church. The way you practically do that is, money is good, it's a good thing. But it doesn't rule me, it, is not, it does not make up my worth. I love my spouse. My spouse is a good thing. But my spouse, my family, they do not make up my worth. And then live into that. What does that mean to not be your worth? I love my job. My boss is good to me, but he is not your king. Don't let him define your sense of worth. Don't let his critique make you live in fear and anger and depression. Don't let his affirmations make you proud. Look down on other people. Leaders in the church could be a good thing. Don't let what they say, good or bad, define your worth. You see that? Crown Jesus with many crowns. Crown him with every crown. Let's pray.